Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to this fifth episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'm going to share some of my thoughts relating to financial markets and specifically how one can think about navigating through today's overwhelming uncertainty and the volatility that seems to plague daily activity in financial conditions. Before we begin, let me just recap my worldview as existed before the coronavirus pandemic struck and has had such a devastating impact on the economic activity. And the worldview I had was really centered around four key transitions that were taking place in the world. The first was China's transition from an investment-led economy towards a consumer-led society. And my suggestion was that there was a lot of extra capacity built up in the Chinese economic system and that oversupply and extra capacity was effectively a deflationary force. Secondly, I was talking about technology and how technology was accelerating, producing more and more output for same or fewer inputs. And again, the impact here was deflationary. Number three, I discussed energy and what was happening in specifically North America with shale and fracking, but also in the advancements taking place in alternative energies, resulting in more supply of energy, a downward pressure on energy prices, and that also being, again, all else equal, deflationary. The fourth trend was demographics and what was happening in the world's largest economies. Specifically, the world's largest economies were aging, and as individuals moved towards fixed incomes and retirement, that they would spend less. So this was a negative demand shock. Again, all else equal, deflationary. That was the world as I saw it before the pandemic struck, and I had suggested at that time that countries would compete for the limited demand that existed in the global economy, and they would do so by using their currencies. And that would suggest a currency war dynamic or a race to the bottom with competitive devaluations, driving inequality, creating fertile conditions for the rise of populism, nationalism, protectionism, and deglobalization, i.e. trade wars, etc. And so that was the world I saw before the pandemic struck. In December of 2019, I gave a short speech, uh, 25 minutes or so, which is available online. You can find it at vimeo.com slash There were 10 indicators I suggested we pay attention to to determine when we were going to be facing the next global economic recession. And so I'll summarize them quickly here. The first indicator was Chinese growth. And I said we have to pay attention there because China incrementally was driving GDP growth uh, disproportionately. I highlighted the fact that there was a lot of debt in China and that some of that debt was going bad. I suggested there was inflationary pressure, predominantly because of food. Again, this was all before the pandemic struck and before there was well understood dynamics around the coronavirus. The second indicator I suggested we pay attention to was the American consumer. Uh, With the United States economy being the largest in the world and 70% of it being driven by the American consumer, I said this is an absolutely critical driver in the global economy. 
And there was a chart I produced, which I think is quite telling and happy to share it with anyone who wants to. So you can reach out and I'll, and I'll send it uh, to you. But it's consumer confidence divided by unemployment. And if you look at U.S. consumer confidence divided by unemployment, what you see is a sine wave where it really in the late 60s was at an all-time high. It sort of bounces around lows in the 70s into the early 80s. And then it goes up. To 1990 and then comes back down uh, in 92 and then goes almost straight up to 2000, down in 2002 or 3, up to 2008, down to 2009, and then it went straight back up almost to the same levels of 2000. Um, and the reason I look at this chart is consumers that have confidence but no jobs are not really interesting in terms of driving economic activity. Likewise, someone who has a job but has no confidence is also unlikely to be a major driver of economic activity. And so when we see those two things line up, we get very strong economic conditions, which is what we've had. However, they tend to be cyclical, so when we get very, very, very strong readings on this measure, it usually is a warning sign. And this indicator of, again, consumer confidence divided by unemployment was suggesting we needed to be concerned. Uh, the third indicator I looked at was U.S. economic policy. Um, I said that you know tightening rates uh, usually have, operates with a with a lag, and so we would probably head into a recession at some point because of the lagged impact of higher rates. And I said lowering rates, as the Fed had done during the course of 2019, usually happened before we entered a recession, and that just has to do with the lags associated with monetary policy. Uh, the fourth thing I talked about was global uncertainty driven predominantly through trade wars, but also the, the need and the desire of corporate boardrooms to shift their supply chains away from just-in-time, most efficient uh, global supply chains towards just-in-case, more resilient local supply chains. Uh, and I thought that the paralysis relating to trade wars predominantly has resulted in a capital investing slowdown. Uh, the fifth dynamic I paid attention to was population growth. I talked about how uh, the world's uh, fastest-growing economies happen to also have the world's fastest-growing populations, and that was potentially problematic because it could impact the ability of some of these large countries to generate enough jobs to build a middle class. Uh, and so this forthcoming boom that we thought was coming from the middle class might be at risk. Uh, the sixth dynamic I talked about was the technology bubble, and here I was referring to some of these unicorns that exist. Uh, WeWork was the one I believe I highlighted, um, but you know, private technology companies, and, and WeWork's actually not even a technology company, but it was put in that bucket, but let's just say the unicorn bubble bursting. Um, number seven I was talking about was debt dynamics, large amounts of debt but very little sign of distress. And so usually you don't see distress until you see it en masse. And that's what I was highlighting as a potential risk, albeit that it hadn't yet come to fruition. Uh, number eight, I talked about India. I said Modi, while uh, having grand ambitions, was unlikely to succeed specifically because of robots and automated manufacturing. And as you've heard from me elsewhere, I think India may prove to be the world's largest uh, disappointment versus expectations, for sure in the emerging markets, but 
quite possibly globally. Um, and number nine, I talked about productivity and how this deflationary problem we have of too much supply relative to demand uh, was going to get worse because technology was spreading widely into virtually all sectors and digitization was increasing productivity. And uh, that actually uh, created more supply, uh, creating more deflationary pressure, all else equal. And then the 10th dynamic I talked about was the U.S.-China rivalry as being far more than a trade war being a tech war, a space race, an arms race, a currency war, an economic war. And so when I put all of that together, what I concluded was there was an elevated risk of a global economic recession hitting within 24 months or less. Now, the reason I give you this as a backdrop is fundamentally, the global economy had, to stick with a medical analogy, at least temporarily, pre-existing conditions. And these pre-existing conditions made us more vulnerable to a shock. And the shock happened to be a virus, but it could have been one of many other things. So let's connect the dots to that earlier medical analogy. We have a patient with pre-existing conditions, and then we suffer an attack from a virus. The response by regulators and policymakers alike has been effectively to halt economic activity, to induce an economic coma. Now, while that might be medically necessary, it's far from clear that we will emerge from this coma as well as we were beforehand. We're still vulnerable. We were vulnerable before. And so to have equity markets, as they recently have done, bounce right back thinking, oh, everything's great, is effectively suggesting this patient with pre-existing conditions that was induced into a coma will emerge and run a marathon. And I just don't think that's likely. I think the long-lasting impact here on economic activity and the performance of firms will be substantial. And I don't think equity markets fully reflect that. So we've also seen regulators uh, juice the adrenaline in the economic system uh, in the form of quantitative easing and all sorts of other stimulus. Now, the very simple financial market implication of massive money printing is debasement will drive investors towards currencies that cannot be printed. And for better or worse, that tends to be, or at least historically has been, gold and precious metals. Um, and it could also be, uh, for those that are more technologically sophisticated or more uh, cutting edge, it could be some of the digital and cryptocurrencies, uh, the digital versions of gold, if you will. Um, so that's one investment implication for financial investors, thinking about currency debasement in the current economic environment should provide a tailwind to precious metals and non-printable currencies. And the uh, second implication that I want to discuss for financial markets has to do with the passive investing bubble, which I've written about and spoken about extensively. So I won't bore you all with my thoughts here again. The one dynamic, the one dynamic I will highlight, however, is that I think we're at the point where 
this virtuous cycle of inflows driving higher prices, driving more inflows, driving higher prices, maybe getting closer and closer to the point of outflows driving lower prices, driving more outflows, creating lower prices. And we can see this virtuous cycle turn vicious. Now, there are many reasons this can happen. One could be the shock to the financial system, as we've seen, uh, although the stimulus and activity on the part of central bankers and regulators pr has proven so far to, to calm investor nerves. But it also could be something such as more retirees entering a stage of their lives where they don't want the equity risk and the volatility-driven concerns leads them towards a lower equity allocation. And as we get that, uh, that may itself allow this uh, passive investing bubble to burst and create a reversal of this virtuous into a vicious cycle. So that's the second implication I wanted to discuss. Uh, the third implication has to do with uh, budget deficits and the fact that the U.S. budget deficit is going to balloon here. Uh, not only did we run a 5% budget deficit, roughly 5% budget deficit during a fabulous economic time, but now we have a situation where GDP is collapsing and stimulus and other uh, fiscal spending is going up, uh, creating a dynamic where uh, the deficit as a percentage of GDP will expand very, very rapidly to a quite large number. And that creates a lot of concern for me when it comes to the U.S. dollar. Uh, while the U.S. dollar has proven to be sort of the, the least dirty shirt, if you will, uh, and has proven to be strong uh, so far, that has in large part to do with the weakness everywhere else. I do think that the dollar will likely weaken in the future. I don't know when or how significantly it will, but that mere process of a weaker dollar should result in strength for commodities and other assets that are priced in dollar terms. So that makes me very excited and bullish about commodity exposures. And another reason to be excited about commodities really has to do with the outlook for inflation. For the first time in a long time, I am seeing some of the signs that might point to this deflationary environment ending. Just think about what's happening on the supply side. We are seeing disruption. We're seeing friction in supply chains. We're seeing trade conflicts. We're seeing now coronavirus-related lockdowns. We're seeing shutdowns of factories. We are seeing a supply shock where supply has been disrupted. At the same time, so far, demand has been disrupted, but we're seeing enormous economic stimulus in the form of fiscal spending as well well as quantitative easing that will produce a lot more money chasing what may be fewer goods. This has the potential to change the world that we're in from one where deflation has been the dominant force into one where inflation may prove to be the dominant force. The investment implications of that, if true, would be enormous. And so that's an area I'm really paying attention to quite closely to see if we get the inflationary dynamic that I think might be starting right now. So uh, let's just summarize quickly the investment implications of what I've seen coming from the coronavirus impact. At this stage, I would say, number one, the very obvious one is quantitative easing and money printing globally should drive demand and provide a tailwind to non-printable currencies such as gold or crypto slash 
digital currencies that cannot be expanded rapidly through political manipulation. So that's number one. Number two, I'm worried about the passive investing bubble bursting. I think virtuous cycles end usually around recessions and have the potential to turn vicious. I don't know if that's the case yet here, but it's worth watching. Number three, dollar dynamics. We've had a strong dollar I think the money printing and other economic activity in the form of a large fiscal stimulus that's resulting in an enormous government budget deficit here in the United States have the potential to turn the dollar strength into dollar weakness. That is implication number three. Uh, investment implication number four has to do with inflation and commodities. Um, and here, I think owning real assets seems to be a very prudent thing to do. It happens to line up with value investing as well uh, relative to growth investing because commodities have been so beaten up and, and many of the commodity companies are actually quite cheap. Um, so the last tidbit is that every investor everywhere will make mistakes. We all make mistakes. It's not possible not to. However, we have a choice of the type of mistakes we can make. We can choose to make an error of omission, i.e. miss something that could keep going up, or we could make an error of commission, i.e. capture something that goes off a cliff and falls. And it's times like this where things feel particularly fragile, again, an economic patient with pre-existing conditions put into an economic coma and given unprecedented doses of adrenaline to come out. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we do run a marathon, but I do know we have a choice as to what type of expectation to develop. Uh, we can take the cautious approach and sit it out, or we can take an active approach and potentially uh, lose some money here. My advice at this stage is to focus on making errors of omission rather than errors of commission. Um, so I hope these thoughts are helpful. Uh, I'd welcome any feedback. Uh, please feel free to reach out uh, via Twitter, LinkedIn, or any other format. And I do wish you the best of luck navigating this uncertainty. And here's wishing health and happiness to you and your family. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchamani's website at www.manshamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.